HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register to attend PASA's 31st annual conference by January 28th at pasafarming.org conference. Heading into 2022, the U.S. government is working to make up for lost time in the world of food policy, and farmers are at the center. After a series of lawsuits from white farmers, a relief package promised to black farmers in the U.S. has been replaced by a plan to provide debt forgiveness for any farmer identifying as limited resource or economically distressed, removing any language regarding race from the equation. Meanwhile, Biden cited these same farmers as a key component to fighting climate change, with the USDA investing millions into studying soil's capabilities of storing carbon dioxide. However, recent research shows that factors like rising temperatures and common cattle antibiotics can actually increase the amount of carbon soil releases. As it stands now, the current administration has a long road ahead when it comes to making meaningful progress towards both racial and climate justice. And with the 2022 midterms looming, time may be running out. That was Chapin Montague, with a glimpse at the murky outlook for food policy. In search of greater clarity, we turn to experts in the field to help us understand the realities of the bureaucracy surrounding food security, farming rights, and pesticide regulation. Today, we speak to scientists whose research influences the policy we see on the congressional floor. We hear from nonprofits working to navigate the endless maze of food assistance programs and advocate for those on the receiving end. And we break down the legislation influencing the future of food sovereignty in the U.S. There are rarely clear answers or defined conclusions when it comes to the policy surrounding one of humans' most basic needs. But as we head into the new year, we hope these stories serve as a reminder that there are people working towards a more equitable and sustainable food future for all. I'm Dylan Hoyer, and this is Meat and Three. Meat and three. Meat and three. Meat and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meat and three. This whole episode is about how the government interacts with our food system. And federal food assistance programs are a huge part of that. However, unless you've applied for these benefits yourself, you may not know too much about them. 
Brianna Brady is here to rectify that and provide a quick primer about federal food programs. She talks with Sherry Tomaski of Hunger Solutions New York about SNAP, WIC, TFAP, and all the other acronyms we need to know more about. We're going to start with SNAP. That stands for Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. It was also formerly known as food stamps, although the program runs pretty differently now. It serves all types of families and individuals by giving monthly benefits on an EBT card that people can use at the grocery store. EBT, or Electronic Benefit Transfer, is like a debit card that only lets you buy carrots or yogurt or other food stuff. What makes someone eligible, you ask? The income eligibility limits for SNAP are based on something called the federal poverty level. So in the case of SNAP, the eligibility is anywhere between 130% and 200% of the federal poverty level. Things like the number of people in the household affect how the government considers income and how much they might get in SNAP benefits. So one working adult and one uh, high school-aged child, so that would be a household of two. That household would be able to come into SNAP at 150% of the federal poverty level, according to the rules in New York. And that equates to $2,178 a month in gross income. If someone has small children or is caring for an aging parent, these numbers might also change. For people with small children, there are additional programs. Like WIC. W-I-C which is the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children. That's what the WIC stands for. And that program provides food benefits and other services to pregnant women and new mothers, along with infants and children, all the way up to the age of five. You might have seen little WIC tags in your local grocery store on the shelves beneath certain products. If you haven't, take a look the next time you're in there. You'll find them. They're there because... WIC is a little different um, in that WIC really is a healthcare program, and it provides a tailored food benefit, meaning that the benefits are for specific types of foods that are designed to meet the unique nutritional needs of the people in the household. If you are feeling overwhelmed with information right now, prepare yourself. These programs, which provide benefits directly to people, are just the tip of the iceberg. There are other federal food assistance programs that work more on a population level. First, there's TFAP, the Emergency Food Assistance Program, in which each state gets funding that is directed uh, right to food banks across the state. The federal government is also behind school free and reduced lunch and summer food programs for kids. Through those, the government reimburses school systems or community organizations for providing meals for children from low-income families or entire communities. A final note here. It's really important for everyone who's eligible to apply for benefits. That's because programs like SNAP and WIC are what we call entitlement programs. Like Social Security, everyone who's eligible is entitled to the benefit. There are some folks who worry, you know, I don't want to take those SNAP dollars. I'd much rather a a family with young children get it. But it really doesn't work that way. When you don't take a SNAP benefit that you're eligible for, it doesn't go to anybody else. It just doesn't go anywhere. There is still a lot of stigma around and barriers to accessing food benefits. But hopefully with a little bit more knowledge, we can start to combat that. 
During the two years I was in AmeriCorps, SNAP benefits helped keep me fed while I paid for my rent and kept the lights on in my apartment. So if you or someone you know might be eligible, look into it. Apply. It doesn't hurt anyone when we all get to eat. Now let's take a look at how food assistance programs are faring within current legislation. The $1 trillion infrastructure bill has passed both chambers of Congress and was signed into law. Now, the Senate is stalled on a vote on the Build Back Better Act, without unilateral support from Senate Democrats. Sam Burroughs dives into how the bill can change the course of our nation's largest meal provider, our school lunch program. As the United States navigated through the early stages of the pandemic, businesses shuttered, millions lost their jobs, and childhood hunger numbers spiked. The reality that schools act as more than centers for education settled in. I spoke with Kurt Ellis, the CEO of Food Corps, a nonprofit organization that seeks to connect kids to healthy food in schools to better understand his vision for a nation's school meal program. We need to get to a place where every child has hands-on education about food in school and where every child has healthy, high-quality meals served to them every day in school without stigma, without shame, without barriers to access. The Build Back Better Act seeks to achieve this vision through a robust expansion of our nation's school meal program. This includes providing additional access for nearly 9 million children, additional investment in the summer EBT program, and elevating the quality of school lunch. Another important provision is an expansion of community eligibility. Community eligibility allows schools in low-income areas to serve free breakfast and lunches to students and eliminates any household paperwork. The option is currently only available to schools where 40% of its student population qualify for free school meals. However, the proposed bill would drop the requirement to 25% of a school's population. One of the greatest steps we can take towards equity and justice in how our school meal program operates is to no longer run it based on an income test. When kids board a school bus in the morning, they're not separated uh, based on who needs to pay a fare to ride a school bus and who doesn't. It's just part of what our school system provides. The same should be true with our school meal program. Right now, we run the school meal program as as a business, essentially, and say that we're going to have a set of kids who are expected to pay and a set of kids who the government is going to pay for. But the result of that is that uh, we end up with a bunch of kids who get stuck in the middle, who don't have enough resourcing to reliably pay for school meals and are expected to pay for them. And we've seen how lunch debt plays out in this country as a, a kind of source of stigma and shame. The expansion of community eligibility eliminates that stigma and provides every student in school with a nourishing meal. Food insecurity accounts for lower test scores and lower high school completion rates in students and disproportionately affects Black and Latinx communities. Schools are where 30 million kids are spending half their waking hours and in many cases eating half their daily calories. They are the place where we can best make sure we've got a level playing field and every child has the nourishment they need to show up in class ready to learn and to be propelled onto a lifetime of healthy eating where they don't just have the basic need of hunger met, they have true nutrition security. The Build Back Better Act lays the foundation for a nutritious future for all schools aged children in the U.S. But only time will tell if the bill can pass both chambers of Congress with all of its necessary provisions still intact.
We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a brief break. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. For 30 years, PASA's conference has served as a springboard for transformative food system change. PASA's 2022 conference features more than 30 virtual and 90 in-person sessions on farming and food systems, covering topics that include building community food webs, keeping seeds to preserve cultural traditions, protecting local watersheds, as well as production methods and business skills for food producers of all levels. Keynote speakers include Soulfire Farms' Leah Penniman, author of Farming While Black, Sarah Mock, author of Farm and Other Efforts, and Jessica Gordon Nemhard, author of Collective Courage, a History of African-American Cooperative Economic Thought and Practice. PASA's virtual pre-conference takes place January 4th through 28th. Register anytime to attend live or get recordings. You can also join PASA in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 10th through 12th for its in-person main conference. Comprehensive COVID safety measures will be in place. Learn more and register at pasafarming.org slash conference. That's P-A-S-A farming.org slash conference. Welcome back to Meet in 3. From the Bucatini shortage to rising prices, Americans and policymakers alike are confronting the unsustainable nature of our food supply chain. In November 2021, One state looked to change the food system from the ground up by enshrining a right to food in their constitution. Resident Mainer Julian Smedley has more on the amendment. Newly minted Section 25 of Article 1 of the Maine State Constitution reads like this. All individuals have a natural, inherent, and unalienable right to food, including the right to save and exchange seeds, and the right to grow, raise, harvest, produce, and consume the food of their own choosing for their own nourishment, sustenance, bodily health, and well-being, as long as an individual does not commit trespassing, theft, poaching, or other abuses of private property rights, public lands, or natural resources in the harvesting, production, or acquisition of food. This is the first amendment of its kind to be ratified in the U.S., and it wasn't really a close call. Nearly 61% of Maine voters voted to pass the language into the Constitution in the 2021 state elections. There are a few reasons why Maine was such fertile ground for the right to food movement. First, as of the 2010 census, it was the most rural state in the nation, with over 61% of its population living in towns of less than 2,500 people. The Pine Tree State is also home to many small farms. Over two-thirds of Maine's farms are in the smallest bracket of the USDA's metric for farm size. Add to this a love of homesteading and a healthy dose of rural libertarianism, and you have plenty of Mainers with an interest in establishing a right to choose the way their food is provided. So what exactly is the goal of the amendment? First, there's addressing food insecurity, which the USDA defines as a lack of access by all members of a household to an adequate amount of nutritious food. According to Feeding America, Maine's food insecurity rate of 12.4% is the highest in the northeastern U.S. While the amendment doesn't do anything to directly address food insecurity, the right to, quote, 
consume the food of their own choosing for their own nourishment, sustenance, bodily health, and well-being, unquote, can be read as a protection against malnutrition and starvation. It also supports those who are working to localize the food system. As of 2018, Maine imported more food than any other state in the continental U.S. The authors of this amendment, State Senator Craig Hickman and farmer Heather Redberg, wanted to protect against the domination of small farms by agribusinesses such as Bayer, who, for instance, control the patents on many of the world's plant seeds. The Right to Food Amendment looks to fire up those manors who resist that domination, say, by trading heirloom seeds that aren't owned by large corporations. Now that the right to food is the law of the land, will we witness a sea change in Maine's food system? Some criticized the amendment as too vague leading up to the election. They argued that it would allow for people to mistreat their livestock, eat cats and dogs, and sell contaminated food. However, the part of the amendment that prescribes, quote, abuses of private property, public lands, or natural resources, unquote, considers animals to be natural resources and therefore protects them from those abuses. Others feared that the courts would be given too much power in interpreting the amendment. But the legislature can pass clarifying provisions to the amendment as time goes on, meaning that the courts won't be alone in interpreting the language. I talked to my local butcher in Maine, who works with small farms, about the right to food. He called it, quote, a lot of fluff, unquote, and said that it won't change much on the ground. But he also speculated that it may change things for homesteaders in Maine and for those who want to sell raw milk. For now, we'll have to wait and see. Other states like Wyoming and North Dakota have considered similar legislation and could take a page from Maine's book. While many may take the right to food to be given, laying it out as fundamental and universal would call into question much of the U.S. and global food systems. It could also serve as the basis of civil rights suits against the corporations that maintain those systems. I might be biased, but Maine could be onto something here. While states like Maine are providing citizens more freedom when it comes to farming, the EPA is implementing necessary regulations for harmful insecticides on a national level. Even if you try to eat organic, there's a good chance that pesticides have touched the food on your plate at some point. In August, the Environmental Protection Agency announced that it will ban the use of the pesticide chlorpyrifos on food, a rule that will go into effect by February of 2022. Andriana Chow speaks with Miriam Rotkin-Elman, a senior scientist at the Natural Resources Defense Council, on what this means for our food system. Chlorpyrifos is a broad-spectrum insecticide. It is known to act in a way that kills a lot of different insects because it harms the way the neurologic system of those insects function. It basically causes the nerve messages to overstimulate, which ultimately kills the bug. Unfortunately, humans' nervous systems aren't so different from bugs. So that same toxicity to the bugs we actually experience in humans. And it's very, very toxic to the nervous system of humans, and especially harmful to the developing nervous system of children. Apples, citrus fruits, broccoli, and the alfalfa and corn that is used to feed the animals we eat. All of these things can be grown in the U.S. with chlorpyrifos use. 
and which is one of the reasons it's been of concern, not only for farm workers and communities that live near farms, but also for children eating contaminated produce. The new rule prohibits chlorpyrifos use on food grown in the United States and on crops being imported into the country. This has been more than a decade in the making, and it's also a win for farm workers who suffer from high exposures to chlorpyrifos. Chlorpyrifos can still be used non-agriculturally, like on golf courses. So what does this mean for the future of its production? One of the main producers of chlorpyrifos, um, Cortiva, is a chemical producer, already um, said that they will cease production of chlorpyrifos and in the market in the United States. So they made that announcement over a year ago um, is as a result of some of the state bans that were going into effect. And so the, the chemical companies are already sort of paying attention to the regulatory environment. If you are worried about food prices, Miriam says that chlorpyrifos has not been associated with price changes in states that have already regulated the pesticide. However, pricing is dependent on many factors, and Miriam reminds us to reconsider how we think about food prices. It's really important to think holistically about how we, um, how agriculture contributes to both individual and community health and the costs associated with that. That instead of sort of focusing on will the price go up or will the price go down or how, you know, on each individual crop, it's an opportunity for um, experts to engage farmers in how to have healthier farming, farming that doesn't harm ecosystems, farming that doesn't harm farm workers, farming that doesn't poison communities, and farmers that doesn't send toxic fruits and vegetables into our food supply. This federal rule is not the first action that has been taken against chlorpyrifos. States like California, Hawaii, New York, and Maryland have previously banned or restricted its use. So how will this rule affect those states? In general, the federal environmental protection agency's rules on pesticides are what's considered the floor. So no state can do something that's less protective than what the federal EPA has done on pesticides. But states have authority, um, depending on state law, that can go above and beyond what is set by the federal government. In California, where the state restricts chlorpyrifos use only within the state, the EPA rule will elevate the existing protections by making out-of-state produce free from chlorpyrifos. But is there the possibility that this rule will be reversed in the future? After all, in 2015, the EPA had proposed to ban chlorpyrifos, but reversed its decision in 2017 under a new administration. There would be opportunity for the chemical companies to, or the food growers to try to reintroduce chlorpyrifos to U.S. agriculture, either by allowing a certain amount on a certain set of crops or by specifically looking to register the pesticide again once it had been removed. Miriam also says there may still be opportunities for the opposition to delay deregulation from taking effect. We mentioned that chlorpyrifos use has been contentious for more than a decade. That's because the first petition to ban chlorpyrifos was back in 2007. And in the closing saga of legal battles in 2021, the court granted the EPA 60 days to either ban chlorpyrifos use in food or to identify safe levels for infants and children. EPA is allowed under the law 
to take the time it needs to do rigorous analysis, but it's not allowed what's called unreasonable delay for things that matter to health and safety. And the court had already had to rule a number of times that EPA was engaging in unreasonable delay. So that's why that six-month deadline was put in place. Banning chlorpyrifos is an important win for farmers and consumers. But Miriam says there are so many other pesticides within the same pesticide class as chlorpyrifos that need to be addressed as well. Because we need EPA to really take an approach that looks across these different classes of pesticides and take action on them all and not leave us fighting and ping-ponging one for the other. The more important is the conversation about what we want agriculture to look like. What do we want farming to look like? What do we want our food system to look like? And how does it protect the most vulnerable? The chlorpyrifos rule will supposedly take effect in February 2022. Miriam says pesticides are designed to be toxic. So the more we ask where our food comes from, the more we can see how pesticide use comes with hidden health costs for our human and ecological communities. As we head into the new year, you may be left with more questions than answers when it comes to policy. But we hope these stories have given you a foundation for what's to come in 2022 and a sense of the progress that has been made in 2021. Meet in 3 will be taking some time off in the coming weeks, but we'll be back in the new year with lots of delicious stories to share. To learn more about the guests and topics we touched on this week, check out our show notes. Special thanks this week to Brianna Brady, Sam Burroughs, Andriana Chow, Chapin Montague, Julian Smedley, and H. Conley. Meet in 3 is produced by Hannah Forden, Matt Patterson, Katie Mosman-Wadler, and me, Dylan Hoyer. Our audio engineer is Matt Patterson. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. This program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs in partnership with the City Council. Meet in 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet in 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetin3.nyc. That's all spelled out. <laughs>